Let's take our Bibles and turn first to 1 Chronicles chapter 9. I want to talk this morning about a concept I had never studied in Scripture before this weekend, uh, even though there are multiple references to it throughout the Old Testament. And uh, when I finally did a word study on it and, and felt like the Holy Spirit was really impressing upon my heart to do this, uh, I found that he refers to this concept 35 times in Scripture. Now, we've learned through the years that um, when there is repetition, when there's that much repetition, the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention, and he wants us to, to look at it and study it further. And this concept really, uh, as, I, as I studied it, just applies so uh, perfectly to our walk. As much as it applied to the people back then physically and tangibly, uh, it applies to us this morning spiritually, especially in the, the cultural mess that we're in, and we've talked about that so many times. I never really thought about um, this concept until uh, last night at dinner. Uh, Julie and I were at dinner with Jacob, which is a rare occasion for the three of us just to be together. Matt was at a friend's house, and uh, Annie was out of town, and we decided to get some dinner, and we were discussing uh, the end of the school year and, and all the uh, things that had happened at school, some of the issues and, and problems that were, were there uh, in our kids' school that are present in every school uh, and in present with within this generation. Um, but I don't think those issues that we were discussing, and I don't need to name what they are, but I don't think those issues are necessarily uh, different than anything we faced as kids. Uh, I don't think it's... it's um, it's new, but I think there are two important differences between the issues that kids face now versus the issues that we faced uh, when we were kids. One is there's far more uh, cultural uh, and moral license and acceptance of what used to be considered wrong. Uh, there's, there's far more latitude now uh, for our kids and our teenagers and our, and our uh, young kids, and we need to be praying for them because they are, they are in a far uh, more pervasive culture, I think, than we grew up in. This is not one of those moments where the middle-aged guy goes, in my day it was so much worse. I disagree. In their day it is so much worse. And it's because there's so much more cultural acceptance of, of what was considered immoral when we were growing up and this is even happening among uh, Christians who, who now, instead of abstaining and holding a standard, in many ways are increasingly participating in it. So there's, there's a lot more license and, and acceptance. And the second thing is that technology and social media, which we've talked about many times, not only provides much greater exposure to, to temptation and to sin and to moral compromise, but because it is now so available for our viewing, uh, it now seems more normal. The normal uh, needle has changed, hasn't it? So what is normal now, because it's so uh, visually uh, and culturally uh, accepted and, and visible, uh, now has become the new normal. And in fact, if you do try to object and take a stand, uh, in many ways you're treated as a social pariah. So, so you're outcast because you're holding to a biblical standard. Now, as we sat and talked uh, over these issues, uh, Julie said something that I, in 27 years of marriage, have never heard her say before, and, and it, it struck me at the time, uh, and then as I went home and studied what I was planning to preach this morning, um, I, I realized that the Lord wanted 
uh, us to focus on this thought. She said, we need to be gatekeepers of biblical standards. And as she said that, you know how sometimes when you're talking to somebody and the Holy Spirit just says, hey, take a note of that. I used to write little notes on sweet and low packets until I got mocked by my family because they would find sweet and low packets all over the place. So now I have a, a cell phone. I usually write something down on my phone to, to remember it. But when she said that word gatekeeper, I thought, there's something there. And I went back home uh, to, to try to finish what I was studying, but then I started again, which was great because I love studying the Word of God. But it led me to this passage in First Chronicles chapter 9. And we're going to look at this passage, and then a couple minutes we're going to turn over to, to Nehemiah chapter 10 just for a moment. But here in this passage in First Chronicles chapter 9, we learn what we need to know about being a gatekeeper. Now, there were gatekeepers in Jerusalem. And as we study this, I hope what the Holy Spirit does is he awakens our attention and he shows us the importance of this concept because, because the Holy Spirit, in his infinite and unmatchable wisdom, decides to take a chapter of Scripture and name specific names of people that were gatekeepers. Now remember, not one word of Scripture is wasted. Not one word of Scripture is misused. And we're told that all Scripture, everybody say all Scripture, all Scripture is given for our teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. So we love the Psalms, and we love Romans, and we love Philippians, and we love all those books, and we study Revelation, and we read the Gospels. But First Chronicles 9 is all Scripture, is it not? Which means that First Chronicles 9 is profitable for our teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. This passage is vitally important. So names from 3,000 years ago in a passage that seems unimportant are anything but unimportant. That's why we're going to read and mispronounce every single name. Because it is so important that we understand that the Holy Spirit wants us to see what he's teaching us here. And what we can learn from it is just as applicable as Romans. And just as applicable as Ephesians or Philippians or Second Timothy or whatever. You and I are called this morning every day to a level of responsibility. And the level of responsibility as believers is not just to guard the gates of a city. But to guard ourselves personally, spiritually, relationally and in terms of our ministry. That's what this passage is about. Let's read 11 verses out of this. 1 Chronicles chapter 9. Start in verse 17. And I will do my best. Pray for me. Okay? Now the gatekeepers will Shalom and Aku and Talman and Ahiman and their relatives. Shalom the chief being stationed until now at the king's gate to the east. These were the gatekeepers for the camp of the sons of Levi. Shalom the son of Korah, the son of Ibisaph the son of Korah, and his relatives of his father's house, the Korites, were over the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent. And their fathers had been over the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was ruler over them previously, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshalami, was gatekeeper of the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these were chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. These were enrolled by genealogy in their villages, whom David and Samuel the seer appointed in the office of trust. 
So they and their sons had charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, even the house of the tent, as guards. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, to the east, west, north, and south. Their relatives in the villages were to come in every seven days from time to time to be with them. For the four chief gatekeepers, who were Levites, were in an office of trust and were over the chambers and over the treasuries in the house of God. They spent the night around the house of God because the watch was committed to them and they were in charge of opening it morning by morning. Now, you say, what a strange passage on Memorial Day. I love this passage. This is a great passage of Scripture. Now, let me give you a little tiny bit of background that will just set the stage for where we are. Judah has just come back from captivity in Babylon. They were there under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this happened after the nation divided. You remember Saul was the first king. David was the second king. Solomon was the third king. Then everything went haywire. Rehoboam was king over Judah. Jeroboam was king over Israel. Judah, the lower two tribes. Israel, the northern ten tribes. Now, as they went along, and we've studied this as we've looked at the kings, uh, the, the nation continued to rebel against the Lord. They continued to ignore God. They ignored his law. They ignored his prophets. They, they worshiped false idols. So Judah and Israel were punished. And God allowed them to be taken into captivity. Israel went to Assyria. And Judah, the bottom two tribes where Jerusalem was, went to Babylon. You see in verse 1, if you look back at it, that the reason for this was very simple. It was because they were unfaithful. How many know that God will always have to deal with our unfaithfulness? God will not ignore our unfaithfulness. Now you say, well, is that fair? Why does God deal with my unfaithfulness? Well, there are three reasons, and you may want to write these down. I encourage you to take some notes this morning. The three reasons why God deals with our unfaithfulness. One is to remind us of how great our salvation is. How should we neglect, the Bible says, how should we, uh, how should we neglect so great a salvation? We just sang about salvation, right? Savior, you can move the mountains. You are mighty to save, mighty to save. Jesus, it is you. Great is thy faith. Think about the words that we just got to sing about the Lord. The confidence and hope that we have today. God wants to constantly remind us of his salvation and of his calling on our lives. So when we get away from that and, and rebel against that, he's going to deal with it. Not because he's harsh, he is fair and he's a judge, but he wants to remind you and me. You remember that moment you got saved? You want to really neglect that? You want to rebel against that because I've saved you. Second reason is he wants to keep us focused on how we should live as children. Do we learn from his discipline? Are we growing as a result? Are we becoming more complete like Christ? Or when God disciplines us, do we rebel it against it and, 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 and resent it? See, God uses moments in our lives to teach us and train us and instruct us and, and awaken us spiritually. So does that last or do we quickly forget? And the third thing God wants to do is show us our need for him by contrasting his faithfulness against our failure we sang great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning by morning new mercies i see all i have needed thy hand has provided great is thy faithfulness lord unto me now god's been faithful to us beyond measure how many know that's true god's faithfulness is beyond anything i can comprehend but when i look at my faith unfaithfulness 
And when I look at my sin and my failure and my moments of weakness and my moments when I give in temptation, God contrasts that because he wants us to stay humble and broken. He wants to remind us how much we need him, how much I need the faithfulness of God today and tomorrow and the next day, how much I need that morning by morning new mercies. Oh, Lamentations 3.23, every morning there's fresh mercy. You and I need that. So God looks at Judah and he says, you've rebelled against me and I've got to discipline that. So they go to Babylon. And then they return, and this is in the first part of First Chronicles. And when they return, they start to repopulate the land. Now here's where Judah does the right thing. They recognize that they have been in sin, and they become very zealous about not repeating it. They've been in discipline, they've been punished, God's dealt with them in, in some ways harshly because that's what their sin required, and they get to the end of that, and rather resenting God and going right back to their false idols, as they start to come back into the land, they get together and say, you know what, let's not do that again. Let's become zealous about serving the Lord. And this is where we see in the, in the start of chapter 9, this is what they start to do. They, they become serious about doing things right. And they start in the right way. Anytime you want reform in your life, it doesn't start with, with trying to do things physically. It starts with trying to do things spiritually. So they come back into the land and they say, the first thing we have to do is we have to reestablish the temple. The first thing we have to do is we have to reestablish the priesthood. And if you just glance at verses 2 to 16, and we're not going to read it, that's exactly what they do. In verses 2 to 16, they come back in and they reestablish the temple and they reestablish the priesthood. And then they get to verse 17 and they say, how are we going to protect this? How are we going to guard against slipping again? How are we going to make sure that, that we stay on the right path? And that's where in verse 17, what we just read, down to verse 27, you see in 10 verses, God uses the word eight different times. He says they set up gatekeepers. They set up gatekeepers. There were gatekeepers, and there were gatekeepers, and there were gatekeepers, and there were gatekeepers. Now, anytime the Holy Spirit repeats something that many times, that's not an accident. That's not something you just go, well, isn't that a nice concept? Let's go to the next verse, if we're even reading 1 Chronicles at all. I'm not going to ask who read 1 Chronicles this week. But I want you to notice, because by the end of these 10 verses... God has listed that there were at least 225 people who held that position. And it's that role of gatekeeper that really intrigued me. And I want you to look. Let's just look at verses 18 and 19 and beyond. There, there are a bunch of different ways that they served as gatekeepers. Now again, the, the fact that the Holy Spirit takes time to specify what they were doing is something we should be aware of. So look first at verse 18. They were gatekeepers of the king's gate. There was a man named Shalom, and he was the one who protected the gate to the king. In verse 18 again, there were gatekeepers of the camp of the Levites. Four men, plus their relatives, guarded the priests. They guarded the, the opening to the gate where the priests were. Then in verse 19, it says there were gatekeepers of the thresholds of the tents, 212 people, this is the one we're going to specifically study in a moment, 212 people that stood guard at the entrances to the tents. 
Verse 19, there were gatekeepers at the entrance of the camp of the Lord. Several of the fathers were the ones that stood guard at the gates that went into the, to the community, so to speak. They were, they were the ones that guarded that. Verse 21 says there was a gatekeeper at the entrance of the tent of meeting. A man named Zechariah was the one that stood at the door of the church. He was the one that, that stood there to make sure that only holy things went into the tent of meeting because that's where the presence of God was. And then we see in verse 27 that there were gatekeepers of the treasuries of the Lord. Four people that guarded that day and night, that stayed there overnight. They didn't go home to their own bed. They stood there all night and made sure that nobody got into the treasury. Now you say, well, Paul, why do we take time to do this? Because let's summarize what they're doing. They're protecting the leader. They're protecting the spiritual center of their life. They're protecting their everyday life. They're protecting their community. They're protecting their place of worship. And they're protecting what's most valuable. And it says in verse 24 that they guarded the area on the east, on the west, on the north, and on the south. Nothing was left unprotected. There was no room for a breach. There was no room for an opening for the enemy to sneak in in any way. They were not exposed in any way. So every aspect of their daily life was monitored, safeguarded, and secured against attack. Every area of their life was monitored, secured, and safeguarded against attack. Now stop and just let that sentence sink in because the spiritual application of that is absolutely crystal clear. How do we do this in our lives? When you look at the scope of your life from your spiritual walk to your marriage, to your children, to your friends, to your work, to your ministry, to your lifestyle, to your reputation, are there strong protections in every area, so the crafty and insidious attack of the enemy has no way to get in, has no way to to damage you and your family and your marriage. When you identify what is happening in your life and the attack that you're under and some of the spiritual warfare that you're under, do you have places where you know that there's a a guard, there's a gatekeeper there, or are you passively kind of hoping for the best and, well, it'll kind of work itself out and you're not really standing guard? If, If you can't identify what those things are, here's where you've got to start. We've got to start to immediately seek the Lord and say, Lord, you've got to give me clarity about the areas in which I'm in, in bondage and where I'm vulnerable. And then, Lord, I need you to, to, to I, need, I need to write that down as a spiritual catalog. I need to list that so I know where I need to be accountable to you. And Holy Spirit, I need you to work. Don't just let that go. Well, I know I'm exposed on that. and You know, I, I, I struggle with pornography, but I don't have any safeguards on my computer. It's fine. I'll just, I'll just use self-discipline. You really think that's going to work? Well, I have a problem with, with food. I can speak to this one. I, I, I like to eat brownies, so, but I'm going to make a pan of brownies for the kids, but I'm not going to have any. It's fine. Do we have safeguards? Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tired of my spouse, and we've been married a long time, and they just irritate me, their tone. And, and you know what? I'm just going gonna, gonna to make friends with that person at work. It's harmless. We're just friends. Really? How are we safeguarded? 
And if we can identify those areas, and they're probably already coming to your mind, does it concern you and me enough to stir us to change? Or is it not that serious? That's no big deal. Come on, Paul, this is a heavy message from Memorial Day. Come on, it's fine. Really, is it? Is it fine? Are you walking with the Lord in holiness every day? And does he know that he can depend on you? Because that's the standard. The standard is not do my best. What is the standard? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was perfect. Jesus Christ was holy. And the Bible says, as believers, walk like, tell me, Christ. Walk by the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, and live for Christ. So if the standard we're attaining to and living by is not Jesus Christ, there's work to do. That's why, if you look back at the text, the Lord established gatekeepers in every area of the people's lives. He knew in advance, because he knew Israel and Judah, that the hearts of the people were prone to rebellion. And in the past, they had easily wandered from him, and they had disregarded his law, and they had followed after idols, and they had intermarried, and they had gotten in in all kinds of mess, easily discouraged, quick to give up, just, just, just always in some kind of crisis. But listen, we don't have to live like that. Believers should not live in constant crisis and constant discouragement and constant despair and constantly under under bondage to sin because as we saw last week, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. So not only have we been forgiven and released from the control of sin, but in addition to that, we've been equipped to live in victory and power over sin. And the Holy Spirit has called us to stand firm as gatekeepers, to protect not only our hearts and minds, but to protect our marriages and our children and our church and the body of Christ and our reputation so that when people look at us, not about us, that they will see Christ in us. Now, if we need further evidence of how important this is, all we have to do is look at the people who are listed here, and look at this text. Because it was so important, look at verse 20, it was so important that the passage tells us that the leader of those who are gatekeepers over the thresholds, in other words, those who guarded the houses, and those who guarded the entrance to the camp, that their leader, the one who organized that, was a godly man named Phineas. Phineas was the grandson of Aaron, Aaron was the high priest. Remember, when Israel comes out of Egypt and goes to the promised land, Aaron was the high priest. Aaron was the brother of Moses. So Aaron was Phineas's grandfather, which means that Moses was Phineas's great uncle. So Phineas has some family history here. He's also a priest. And his zeal for the Lord, and you can look at the passage later, just write it down. In Numbers chapter 25, he confronted sexual sin that was present in the camp. And he confronted idolatry. And the Lord was already wreaking havoc. I think the number was 32,000 people that he killed because there was such rampant sexual sin and idolatry in the camp of Israel that Phineas stepped in and confronted it and called it out. And it actually caused the Lord to say, all right, I'm done. 
So Phineas had a record of being a gatekeeper before. Now look at verse 20. Now look what the Spirit says about him. It says, the Lord was with him. There is no greater statement than God can make about you than the Lord was with him. The Lord was with her. Phineas had the Lord. So God didn't just choose any any person off the street to, to lead the gatekeepers by word and example. He intentionally chose somebody who walked with him and got, had God's hand on him. Now we can't overstate enough the importance of, of that spiritual characteristic. And it really should be unmistakably true of every single person that claims the name of Jesus Christ who has received salvation and received the Spirit and received all that we need to be holy. Anybody who looks at you and me, if you're a believer this morning, anybody who looks at me should unmistakably say, the Lord is with them. Oh, when, I, when I'm around that person, I, am, I feel so blessed. The Lord is with that person. That comes by the sacrifice of our will. It comes by walking in holiness. I don't know about you, but I want to be a Phineas. I want to be a Phineas. I want somebody that, I want to be somebody that people say, oh, when, when I'm around Paul Rhodes, oh, the Lord is with him. This is who Phineas was. And God says, I want you to be the leader. I want you to be the, the leader of the gatekeepers. Now look at how else in verse 25, God says the gatekeepers so important that that I've called you to remain faithful as gatekeepers. So families, you guys need to come every seven days and you need to visit your relative who's here. Why? Because if you don't come, they're going to be tempted to leave the post and go home. So make sure, God, God ordains this. God says, make sure every week that the family gathers in the minivan and, and comes up to Jerusalem and make sure that they visit their relative because that person's on post. They're standing there. And, and I want to make sure they don't get distracted and pulled away. How many times do we get distracted? How many times do we, do we get pulled away from being faithful to the Lord uh, and, and His work for, for something that's far less important? You know, I've discovered in my own life that, that sometimes the devil doesn't even need to work very hard to distract me. Because he knows that I'm tangible and, and I'm impulsive and, and I like to follow my gut. So, so he just goes, well, I'll just throw a couple things in Paul's life and, and it'll be easy for him to, to just kind of walk away. Romans 12 commands us not to be conformed to the world. That is an intentional choice. That's not something that happens by proxy. Well, I'll just, I'll just think about it. No, be not conformed to the world. That is a decision that you and I are going to have to make today, tomorrow, and the next day. Do not be conformed to the world. The second thing he says in Romans 12 too is be renewed in your mind. That's also an intentional decision. What goes in? What you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're viewing, all that kind of stuff. Now, all that is possible only through the power of the Holy Spirit, which means we need to be actively asking Him daily, God, help me. God, stir my soul. God, give me the conviction not to be conformed to the world today. And Lord, renew my mind. Change around what I'm thinking. Freshen it up. Move through and clear out all the junk and all the clutter and all the sin and all the mess that's in there. Search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way. Get rid of it, Lord. I want to clean out the basement of my mind. Lord, renew my mind so I'm not inclined to be conformed to the world. Are we praying that every single day? Because we should be. 
oh, we got four or five days. Well, I kind of looked at this and done this, and I said a couple things and acted this way, but it's fine. You know, I'll just I'll come back to God and say I'm really sorry, and then I'll go to church on Sunday. Christ died for more than that, did he not? Christ sacrificed himself for more than that. God has called us to be consistent and faithful gatekeepers. That's why, write this verse down, 2 Chronicles 35.5. Josiah, good King Josiah, said later on to the Levites, who were the priests, who had plenty to do. He said, I want you Levites to prepare the offerings and the burnt sacrifices for the gatekeepers so you will bring their sacrifice, you'll bring their offering to the church because I don't want them leaving their post. So Levites, you do the preparation work and bring the sacrifice on their behalf. I'll turn to one more passage. Keep your place here. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter 10 just for a moment. Just over a little bit. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. So if you get to Psalms, go back. Go back, go back. Nehemiah chapter 10. So he needed a godly man to be over the leaders. They needed to be faithful as gatekeepers. They needed to be consistent. And then in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, let's read just a couple verses here, start in verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, will not buy them on the Sabbath or any holy day, and will forgo the crops the seventh year in the exaption of every debt. Now, what, what is this telling us? It's telling us that the people who served in ministry, and you see it here, the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, you got the choir in there, You've got the temple servants, all those that, that worked in the nursery and worked in the children's department and did VBS. I'm being a little facetious here, but you get what I'm saying. All the people that served, the ushers, the greeters, those who taught classes, all those people had committed themselves, look at the word, to be separate. They separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. And it not only was them, it was their spouses and their kids, all the way down to the little kids. As soon as the kids could understand, they said, hey, we're different. We are separated, and we have vowed not to be defiled by the values of the world or by the worship of false gods. And it says, and I'll do this quickly, they took on four commitments on themselves. There were four things they did. They invited a curse or a blessing based on whether they were walking by God's law. Would we have the guts to say, Lord, today, and I wake up this morning, I want you to either curse me or bless me based on how faithful I am to you. you imagine saying such a thing in the morning? And Lord, if I don't walk with you today, if I walk in sin, I am asking you, I'm inviting, I'm taking upon myself a curse from you. That's how serious they were. Then it says they kept and observed all the commandments and statutes and ordinances of the Lord. Nothing was left out. There were no exceptions. They weren't nuancing anything. 
They committed to not give their daughters to the people of the land and not allow their sons to marry the daughters of the people of the land. In other words, they were committed in their families. We are only going to date and marry people who love and serve the Lord. Parents of teenagers, parents of children, is that the standard your kids know? No, you're not going to date that boy. No, that boy does not walk with the Lord. Don't give me that. Well, I'm going to witness to him. Yeah, we've, I've been there, okay? I made that up. Oh, she's so cute. I'll witness to her. Uh-huh, sure, you will, right. Is the standard for our children, you will date godly people. That is the only people you should date is godly people who have the same standards you have, have the same values you have, and will not lead you into sin. You know what? It's going to be increasingly hard to find those people, but I don't care. Our values for our kids, and we need to teach them that, and here's the hard part, we've got to model it ourselves. So if our associations, and we talked about it a couple weeks ago, our alliances are loose, and we're running around with people that have no tolerance for the Lord and no love for the Lord, and then we say, well, you need to date a nice Christian boy. Our kids are going to go, excuse me? Excuse me, what? Look at your alliances. And you're expecting me to hold the standard when you won't yourself? So they had huge values here that they said they took on themselves because they were going to serve as gatekeepers. Now, if that was God's standard, let me bring this to a close. If that was God's standard for the people to be consistent and holy and faithful and set apart to guard gates, then how much more important is God calling us to be holy and consistent and faithful and set apart to guard the spiritual gates of our life? If I had to meet those standards just to stand at a post and say, you can't go in here, this is the gate. If if God had that kind of standard for those people, then what is he calling us to as believers who are guarded and entrusted with the work of the gospel? Because he says to us, you are my ambassadors, you are my servants, Go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. In other words, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. Jesus, going back to heaven, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. This will be better because now you're going to go. And if I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ, then I better meet these standards that God's called us to, to, and I better guard my life and my heart and my family and my community because God's calling us to a huge responsibility. So what are we called to guard? Let's finish. Take some notes here. Let me list a couple things. I'm going to take like 30 seconds on each one. I'm going to give you what, we're, what we need to guard, and I'm going to give you a couple verses. Just write the verses down. Commit this week to studying these texts, because we don't have time to go to all of them, but they're great texts. And we can use these texts now to ask the Lord to help and strengthen us to be faithful in what we guard, Okay. I'm going to give you seven things real quick. Number one, we're called to guard our hearts and minds through Christ. We're called to guard our hearts and minds through Christ. Luke 21, 34 says, Be on guard so your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation. That is drinking too much alcohol. I know that's a taboo in Wisconsin. But it says, Don't be weighed down with alcohol and drunkenness and the worries of life. 
and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. In other words, be sober physically and spiritually because the devil's constantly trying to lay a trap. Luke 21, 34. Philippians 4, 8. Whatsoever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good report, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. We're called to guard our hearts and minds through Christ. Second, we're called to guard our responsibility to represent and serve the Lord. We're called to, called to guard our responsibility to represent and serve the Lord. 2 Timothy 1.14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. God has given us the treasure of salvation and his spirit and his calling. We're supposed to guard it. 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what's been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. The bottom line there is Christ has died to free us, and we need to protect that with our whole lives. So guard your heart and mind, guard your responsibility to represent the Lord. Number three, we're called to guard against those who aren't walking with the Lord and want to corrupt us. We're called to guard against those who aren't walking with the Lord and want to corrupt us. As we talked about in the Alliance study, we need to be very honest about some of our quote-unquote friends. Because some of our quote-unquote friends are dragging us away from the Lord. 2 Timothy 4.15 is the verse. Be on guard against him, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. 2 Peter 3.17 Knowing this beforehand, be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Youth, let me talk to you for a second. This is an important verse for you. Do not be carried away by the junk that is around you. Do not fall away from your steadfastness from the Lord because the people around you aren't living for Christ. And it is harder for you, I promise you, than it was for us. But you have to stay steadfast. So guard against those who aren't walking with the Lord. Number four, we're called to guard against division in our marriages. I want to repeat that one a couple times. We're called to guard against division in our marriages. I want you to say that with me. We're called to guard against division in our marriages. Say it louder. We're called to guard against division in our marriages. Ephesians 5, 22 to 25. Husbands, you know this. I want you to hear it again like it's the first time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is a perfect standard. It also says to sanctify her spiritually. Your wife should be more holy because of her relationship with you. Wives, you don't like this verse, but this is what the Spirit of God says. Be subject to your husbands in everything as to the Lord. It's not, it's not he's a dictator. It's you serve the Lord. The way you serve the Lord is the way you serve your husband. It doesn't mean you're a slave. It doesn't mean he can treat you like garbage because that's not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. So men, do your job and your wife will love you back. Wives, do your job and your husband will treat you well. It's real simple. Can you tell I'm frustrated over the years of counseling marriages that fell apart? We are called to be gatekeepers 
faithful gatekeepers of our marriages. And Christ is the standard. And when Christ is the standard, that prevents that door from swinging wide open, leaving us unprotected to intruders. And when Christ is the standard, it hinders any thoughts of unfaithfulness and infidelity. It it prevents lust and coveting and resentment and and, and materialism and, and dulled feelings and boredom and lack of sacrifice. All those things are killing our marriages, and we need to put an end to it. We need to stand guard. You can't have my marriage. You can't have it, enemy. You can't have my marriage. I'm not going to give in. Number five, we're called to guard our kids against the world and to train them to be godly. Parents, we are called to guard our kids against the world and train them to be godly. We are not called to let them be part of the world and be ungodly. Now, I am not talking about being an obsessive helicopter parent. I am talking about being a holy and sanctified parent who is able to teach our kids and teach them good relationships that they can look at our marriages and say, that's what it looks like when we honor the Lord. That's what it looks like when mom and dad love the Lord and honor the Lord. You remember being 15 or 17? How many, how many, I know I'm old, but I can kind of remember it. Gas was 55 cents. It was wonderful. Those were the days, right? When I was 15 or 17, here's what I knew. I knew everything. I knew what was best. My parents just didn't quite get it. I had personal passions that drove me. I lived for the moment. My whole life was in front of me. I had it all, and everybody else was just dumb. You know what I had? You know what I didn't have? I didn't have a clue. We have to teach and train our kids. And listen, we have wonderful kids in this church. I'm so, I I just get blessed when I see the kids in this church. They say hi, they walk by, they're learning, they're holding their Bibles, they're well respected, they're well behaved. I mean, come on, we've got great kids in this church, but our job is not done. We have to teach and train them in the way that they should go. Our responsibility is to be gatekeepers. And you know what? It does not matter if they like it. It is not our job to be liked. It is not our job to be their friends. It is our job to parent them and teach them how to walk with Christ. But listen, they will call out hypocrisy. They will call out hypocrisy. They're smart enough to know that. So if our gates are wide open and we're unprotected against the enemy, guess what they're going to say? You have no right to put that standard on me because you don't do it yourself. And you know what? They're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. I can't give my kids the opening to say, you are not living respectably. You're not living for the Lord. Because as soon as I do that, the devil's going to sweep in and go, see, your parents are hypocrites. That whole Christianity thing's a joke. Do what you want. You don't think the devil's going to do that? (laughs) He will. Guard your kids against the world. All right, let's finish on some happy ones. We're called to guard the body of Christ. We're called to guard the body of Christ. This church and the overall church. Acts 20, 28. He's speaking to the leaders, but I think this is for everybody. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. 
That means living for Christ, serving Christ, talking about Christ, fighting for Christ. It means holding each other accountable. It means standing against gossip. It means uh, pushing against division. It means serving and giving and attending faithfully. It means making a sacrifice. Listen, I feel like after Christy's announcement that I'm going to take a Sunday off this summer and go sit in the nursery and hold babies. Somebody else can preach. I'm dead serious. We have a need to guard the body of Christ. We have a need to train up children. We need dozens of volunteers for VBS. We can't do VBS if we don't have it. It's not going to be five of us doing it. We need a bunch of people. Listen, we can help, but it is our job to guard this flock. You hear somebody talking about somebody else, you say, stop right there. Let's go talk to them. Right now, come on. Well, I don't, of course they don't want to talk to the person. They'd rather gossip about them. Stop it in its tracks. Somebody's causing division outside the church. Say, don't talk about my church that way. That's my church. You want to go to another church? God bless you. Be wonderful. But you know what? Don't talk about my church. We've got to guard the body of Christ. Number seven, I'm done. We're called to guard against materialism. We're called to guard against materialism. Luke 12, 15 is the verse. Jesus said to them, beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even one, not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. What's most important to you? Nothing should transcend Jesus. If we had to give up everything, listen now, I'm done. If we had to give up everything to follow him, would we? When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he says, oh, I've kept all the commandments. I'm wonderful. I love God. This is great. And I'm ready to follow you. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, get rid of everything you have. Let's just make sure your priorities are in order. He's not arguing poverty. He's arguing priority. Why don't you give up everything you have and then come follow me and I'll give you everything you need. And he went away sad because he had many possessions. Do the things we have, the things we want, the things we value, the things that are important to us, do they take precedence over the Lord? Because if they do, they're idols. And he says, first commandment, you'll have no other gods before me. I'm a jealous God. These are the challenges before us, and they're huge. But here's the good. God has enabled us with everything we have pertaining to life and godliness. So you and I have to be gatekeepers of these things. We have to stand in the doorway like the 212 that stood there in the doorways and protected their houses and protected the tents and protected the families and said, no intruders coming in here. This is my family. This is my life. You will have no part of it. We're called to be gatekeepers. Not world leaders. God's not called me. I'm 51. I think I'm past the place where God's called me to be a world leader. But I can be a faithful servant of God. And as a faithful servant of God, God's going to say, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to anoint that work in your life as you stand as a gatekeeper. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning for this tremendous calling that you've given to us. Lord, we're sobered by it. We're sobered by this responsibility to be gatekeepers. But Lord, what a great calling. And I pray you would find us faithful 
Lord, we know the enemy is constantly going to fight us, constantly push against us, constantly try to distract us and discourage us. But Lord, you have already won victory over him. We are declared more than conquerors, overcomers through Christ. So Lord, as we walk with you and as we walk by your spirit, you will give us that victory time and time again. Lord, help us this week now to isolate and, and show us, Lord, with great clarity the areas where we are exposed where the flank is weak, where, where we're not protected, Lord. And stir that in our hearts. Draw us to conviction, Lord, that we would confess that to you and ask you for help because, Lord, you are ready to help us. May we stand, Lord, as faithful gatekeepers of your work and our lives. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your sufficiency for us. Help us now, Lord, we pray. Give us strength and courage, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.